Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Scott Luton and Constantine Dino Limbarakis here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's live stream. Dino, how you doing today? Doing great, Scott. Uh, just getting back on a Monday here, right? Get the week kicked off. Absolutely. Looks like you've been reading some good books back behind you. Lots of books. Yes. Have you read all those <laughs> books? Uh, some of them <laughs> halfway through. Well, hey, it's great to have you back uh, here. A lot of folks may recall uh, you live up in the Chicago area, been doing big things in global supply chain for quite some time. And looking forward to having you here with us monthly. Uh, yes. in the months ahead. So folks get ready to buckle up. Uh, now, Dino, we got to yes. give a tip of the hat. Uh, Greg White out on assignment today um, yes. has several full plates, but uh, he's here with us in spirit undoubtedly. And uh, that's a good thing, right? Of course, with his Johnny Cash shirt or whatever <laughs> shirt he's he's dying on today. <laughs> Whichever one, you know, it's a cool one. So, <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. He's always got he's got he's got that suave look. I like always, <laughs> always. Hey, but on today's show, uh, as our audience, as you come to expect, it's a supply chain buzz, a live show that comes at you every Monday at twelve noon Eastern time. As always. We're going to be discussing a variety of news and developments today across global business, really. And hey, we want to hear from you. So give us your take in the comments throughout the show. And if you're listening to the podcast replay, which I think we usually publish every Friday, hey, we'd encourage you to join us live on a session on LinkedIn or YouTube or other social media channels of your choosing. We'd love to hear from you. Right, Dino? Yes, for sure. Now, in just a couple of minutes, we've got a special guest. This is going to be a very unique edition of The Buzz. Not only do we have uh, Constantine with us, but we also have Mike Griswold uh, with Gartner, who's going to be joining us here in just a minute. And, you know, uh, Dino, as I shared with you in the pre-show, one of our longest-running series is Supply Chain Today and Tomorrow with the one and only Mike Griswold. And that's been going – I bet we're three-plus years in producing that series that's once a month. So uh, you and I both are in for a special treat today, right? Yeah. Well, in the age of the podcast era, that, that's a long time. <laughs> that's right. right. I mean, that's impressive. That is right. Um, all right. So before we bring in Mike and for me and Mike and Constantine dive into the news of the day, I want to share a few resources with all of y'all. And by the way, we get to uh, welcome in one of our longest. Uh, Aaron, we've missed you. Uh, Aaron has been a part of our programming for uh, probably at least three years and would pop in from time to time. So great to have you back in. And we're happy that you remembered to tune in as well, Aaron. I'm trying to remember what part of the country that you're in. Try to uh, remind us if you would. Um, all right. So Constantine, a few resources for our global audience. I want to start with this one. With that said, that we've published over the weekend. Now, Dino, did you know that July 16th, it's already a thing. It is AI Appreciation Day. Did you know that? I, I did not know it. 
I guess the question is, what part of the AI are you appreciating? <laughs> you know what? It's going to just keep growing, right? I mean, it's going to have multiple days in the calendar, I guess. Oh, it's so true. But I, I like this image. And to folks, you may be listening. You can't see the image. You have to check out the video. But it's a, a very, very scary robot saying, you will appreciate me, Dino. You will appreciate mm. me. So uh, mm. <laughs> y'all check out, with that said, uh, 22,248 subscribers to that newsletter that's about 41 editions uh, old. And we appreciate every single one and all the feedback that we get um, from across that community. Now, from with that said, Constantine, to one of our next live events, which is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Dino, we're all trying to decode digital transformation these days, right? Yes. And what yeah. it means and what it means for your organization, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what is... uh. You know, transforming, uh, it's a constant, is a transformation is constant, but you know, how are you doing that and where are you doing it? I'm really interested and excited to listen in on this tomorrow. Yes. Dino, you took the words out of my mouth. What are you, what are you doing? What, what actions are you taking? So join us tomorrow at 12 noon Eastern time to welcome back Lyle Ekdahl and our friend Greg Davis, um, who's going to be speaking to Greg and I about charting a path forward very actionable insights, of course, sponsored by our friends at Next World. So y'all join us for that. And then finally, one other session. We've got Wednesday. We're going to be talking freight, Constantine, freight, uh, specifically with Zengistics and Stone Distributing. And by the way, if you like really good beer, check out Stone Distributing. Dino, I know that you and I both are a fan of an adult beverage or two, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It depends. Are you a lager or an ale guy? That's the question that I have. I am anything cold. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. But but hey, uh, we got to lift up the supply chain behind uh, those that allow us to enjoy our favorite adult beverages. So join us on Wednesday at 12 noon as we uh, explore really the successful and the innovative partnership between Synergistics and Stone Distributing and how the uh, Turbo organization plays a really big part in that reimagined relationship. So join us there Wednesday at 12 noon Eastern time. Okay, before we bring on uh, Mike Griswold, I want to share a few folks here. That's right, Aaron Dino. The Pittsburgh area. Yes. Hail the pit. I went to pit for grad school. So there you go, Aaron. That is right. Scott. Yes. That's right. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, so Aaron, small world. It's always smaller when you when you start looking around, right? Uh, Korai Kose is back with us. Oh, yes. How about the headshot, Dino? Look at that headshot. He's looking studly in that picture. Man. Professional. So. It may not be a good time <laughs> to be talking Hollywood right now. And we hope that all sides, you know, figure that out. But that looks like a Hollywood shot to me. And he says, finally got time to catch up with my favorite supply chain infotainment. So we look forward to reconnecting with Kora Kose soon. Let's see here. Carlos is talking about AI already has a day. Wow. Uh, Darlene, great to have you here. Looking forward to connecting with supply chain professionals. Great to have you. Nazreen uh, from Iran. Great to have you via LinkedIn. Muhammad from uh, Pakistan. And Aaron celebrates We Love Pitt. There you go. Um, I, and I should know the mascot for Pitt, Panthers. Panthers, That's right. yes. Okay. Yeah, good, good, good. Panthers. All right. So. With all of that said, Dino, what's one thing? Let me ask you this question before we bring Mike on. Sure. What is one thing that you are most looking forward to? 
about today's conversation. I'm going to put you on the spot, Dino. What's one thing that you're most looking forward to? Well, there's just so many topics, Scott, but I think <laughs> you keep throwing back the idea with this, this conversation we had about the Walmart and the AI negotiating. So that's just stuck in my head. So I, I guess it's that. It's just, I'm interested to see what we have to say. That's right. We're saving the best for last. And folks, uh, speaking of that story, just imagine trying to negotiate with this guy or gal. He's, <laughs> you're gonna do as I'm told, as, as you're told. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna unravel that enigma as we get work our way through the buzz here today. So stay tuned for uh, four or five interesting stories and takes of what's going on across global business. Okay, so Dino, with no further ado, I want to welcome in our guest today. You ready to go? Ready. Buckled up? Buckled. Got that. <laughs> gotcha. Hanging on to your socks? Uh, yes, I have socks on. Yes, I mean. <laughs> okay. yeah. All right. So with all that, I want to bring in our special guest for today's Supply Chain Buzz, our dear friend, Mike Griswold, Vice President and Analyst with Gardner. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Hey, great. I lived, uh, my wife and I lived outside of Pittsburgh for five years in the early 90s. So I, I, uh, I love Pittsburgh. Uh, she's a huge Steelers fan. I am not, but uh, it's a great place. The people are nice. It's a great sports town. Um, yeah, uh, have nothing but fond memories of Pittsburgh. Love it. Yes. In the early 90s, that'd be the days of uh, Bubby Brister, I think, quarterbacking those Steelers teams maybe, huh? Yeah, it was uh, a couple of things, Scott. One that will be near and dear to your heart. Um, so the Penguins, I think, won two out of three Stanley Cups in the early 90s. But um, the Pirates and Sid Green, it was just they they just could not get past your Braves in oh. those uh, in those early 90s. You know, I am so glad you mentioned that, uh, Mike. I was just <laughs> I was just reminiscing uh, this past weekend about that. And if y'all could indulge me just for a second, uh, that 92 Pirates team was one of the best, I would say, in probably modern franchise history. You got you, Doug Drabeck, who was a Cy Young winner. Uh, and dominating that year, they had a young Barry Bonds. You had Andy Van Slyke in center. You had Jay Bell at short. Uh, you had Stan Belinda coming out of the pen. I mean, they had a lot of stars on that Pittsburgh team. But then, Mike, you mentioned the Penguins because Mario Lemieux and Yarmor Yager, they dominated hockey yeah. for a stretch. Uh, and I'm not the biggest hockey guru, but uh, it was tough to deny what the Penguins did there. So thank you for letting me reminisce through those early 90s, Mike and Dino. Dino, quick comment. I mean, you you, you went there for grad school. Did you get um, yes. uh, enmeshed into the you know, local scene there? You know, I, I lived I lived in the area called Shadyside, right down mm -hmm. Fifth Avenue. And that was just such a, an awesome experience because you got Duquesne University, you've got Pitt, and you also have Carnegie Mellon. So it's really quite a campus there. Mm -hmm. and, and it's called Oakland. So a lot of people don't know Pittsburgh. It's like, well, Oakland, but that's the that's the neighborhood over okay. there. So it's a, it's a neat, it's a neat city and it's got that history, deep history, you know, very Eastern European kind of dug in and and now it's become like a tech city. Mm. So uh, it's really a cool place to visit. Well, man, we're gonna we're gonna have to make a visit and do a supply chain buzz live on scene <laughs> in uh, in Pittsburgh. Yes. And by the way, Gino, great to have you from North Alabama. Gino Pledger, uh, a, a rock and roll drummer uh, by night and saves supply chains by day. So great to see you, Gino and Sylvia, our dear friend Sylvia, tuned in from Charleston, back from her big travels where she visited family in Germany, including her dad, who had some great stories, which we'll be diving into soon. Okay. 
So we're going to make a hard shift here. We're going to talk about uh, back to school in a second. All right. We got some interesting figures, but I want to start with asking you both. And Mike, we're going to start with you. You know, when I think of um, you know the, those formative years, you know, especially elementary school, when you still would get excited maybe about back to school. When I think of things that really I had me doing cartwheels, that is when like I'd get a new trapper keeper, folks, a new trapper keeper. <laughs> now, now I never had any of these six. I'm not. I think I had like typical '80s like uh, graphics on mine, you know. But a good trapper keeper to start the year, that was a highlight. Kept everything. Everything you needed, you could keep in a trapper keeper, and and we used to beat those things up uh, dramatically. But for y'all and for Mike starters, what what is one thing you remember you know, asking your your folks about? That you thought was really cool as you get back to school. Yeah, I, I'll I'll get to that. I just wanted to go back to your AI poster. I think. Oh yeah. Um, I didn't know it was AI appreciation day. If you read the fine print, I think it's AI appreciation day brought to you by Skynet. So <laughs> we just we just need to be very careful around who's determining AI appreciation. Um, so but true. anyway, anyway, to, to your question, when I was a kid, this would be early, like in the uh, first or second grade, when you when you needed crayons. Right. I always wanted the big box of sixty four. My parents mm. were like, "Well, I don't know that you need sixty four. We'll get you like the." the 16 or the 24 but but what i liked but what i tried to sell them on was the fact that the big box of 64 had its own sharpener in the back it's like hey yeah. i won't have to bug you to sharpen my crayons i can just do it all myself <laughs> it's it, it never worked vertically but, integrated yes yeah it never worked but yeah that was and then you'd see your friends who got the 64 and it was crayon envy so it was it was tough it was, oh. it, was the, it was the box of 64 crayons. Man, you really brought me back. I had forgotten about that and the sharpener yeah. in the back. So, Dino, yeah. how about you? Yes. How, can you top that? I don't know if I can top it, but I'll kind of use that same parallel of that first, second grade, what's important then. I would say the lunchbox. Mm. Ah, yes. You break with the lunchbox because back then it was metal and then they started going to plastic and you're like, did you have the Superman or the Super Friends or the Mar? Marvel wasn't as popular then. No. It was like Super Friends. It was DC, and then you always had like the cool movie, right? Starsky and Hutch. I remember so my cousins had the Starsky and Hutch, or you know something. Uh, you know the the Dukes of Hazard. I mean, you think of we're talking like you know that was what was cool back. That's then. right. That's and right. It came, I, I, with, it came with its own thermos. Right. Yeah. <laughs> same thermos. Your and then, thermos. You know, you didn't want your. I was the youngest of the bunch, so I I didn't want the handovers. No. But then every once in a while, you got the hand. And I think my favorite one was the Night Rider one. Oh, oh yes. man, that's taking me back. Uh, I had the Fall Guy lunchbox with Lee Fall Majors. Guy. If y'all remember that series yes. back in the day, right? Uh, yes. And just one other little blurb. You know, Marvel and all the superheroes wasn't cool yet because mm -hmm. they hadn't figured out how to make until Superman, right? The, the big mm -hmm. with Christopher Reeve. That's when they first finally figured out how to make a, a great superhero movie. If you remember mm -hmm. in the 70s, they had a really bad Spider-Man uh, movie that I think went yes. straight to TV and then failed miserably. But once yeah. they figured out that formula, there's no shortage of Trapper Keepers, Lunchboxes, and you name it uh, with Marvel, with any kind of superhero on there. But um, Constantine and Mike, thank you both. For taking me back, Mike. I think you're about to add something. Yeah, to I, that. I can just see, I can just see Catherine backstage googling lunchboxes and all that kind of stuff. She <laughs> she's way too young to know what those are. That's way right. too young. 
what's a lunchbox? Uh, <laughs> all right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, all right. Well, we're going to stick with this theme of going back to uh, back to school because uh, in our first story, I'm going to share this graphic really quick. Um, our friends, first off, it's hard to believe it's time for back to school. We've got just a couple weeks left here, at least where we live in Georgia. And according to the experts, spending on supplies is projected to hit record levels. According to data from our friends at the National Retail Federation, uh, John Gold, hope this finds you well, uh, and Prosper Insights and Analytics, uh, via the story uh, from Retail Dive, spending for kindergarten to 12th grade is expected to reach $41.5 billion, Dino and Mike, up from $37 billion last year. But wait, hang on to those socks I was telling you about, Dino, because for college spending, that's expected to reach $94 billion this year, uh, only about $20 billion more than last year. That is Remarkable. Mike, um, what, what's your takeaway when it comes to school spending, impact on global supply chain? What are some of your thoughts here? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I, the, the somewhat skeptic in me says some of that, I think, is is inflation yes. um, in terms of the, the disparity of the number. I don't think I would never argue that it's not going up. Um, I think a couple of things that I think are challenging for the supply chain is, is I'm thinking in some ways, the mix of what people used to buy coming out of COVID, more people at least contemplating homeschooling, which is going to be a different set of supplies than if you're just bringing stuff back to, to, to a, a traditional school environment. So so the, the basket, if you will, I think is going to look a little bit different than maybe it has in the past. But I think you know it's the same thing to a degree that we've talked about in the past here, which is the demand signal, right? The demand mm. signal got skewed during COVID. I think it's still in some ways skewed even to today for things as simple as paper, pencils, and pens, the trapper keepers, right? The, the 21st century version of the trapper keeper. <laughs> so so how we think about the demand signal, I think, is is still a challenge for us. And now you've got people deciding how to go back to school a little bit differently than maybe we saw three or four years ago. So all of those things, um, and I think to some degree, even the conversation we're going to have a little bit later about where the stuff comes from, right? Right. Mm-hmm. All of that, I think, is is factoring into you know, our ability. And I think time will tell if we're able to, to match that anticipated demand. Uh, we'll see. All right. But I yeah. think some of the, those are some of the things that I think are going to make it a little bit different this year than maybe we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. stuff there, Mike. Uh, Dino, what would you add to that? Well, having two kids in college, uh, I, the one thing that I'd be interested in, they're trying to incorporate into the, some of these numbers, uh, how do they accommodate for kids that are paying for tuition and then kids that are not in the uh, campus environment? So. You know, rents. Uh, I've just negotiated rents with my daughter who are moving <laughs> to a new apartment. Right. So if you think about that, that's a big part of your cost. So you have your room and board and your tuition. Room and board, it's like after that first year, second year, kids are like, you know, I, I don't want to live on campus anymore. And, you know, considering my kids are in an urban setting in Chicago, that that's a big deal. And I don't I'd be interested to see those numbers. From a high school perspective, um, and to your point, Mike. We were talking about transformation earlier, right? That transformation of the classroom 
has a big impact on what they're buying today, right? So it's no longer maybe the crayons and the pencils and the pens and the paper, which we're all saying let's be more sustainable in the classroom. It's iPads, it's computers, it's all the digital stuff that gets quickly obsolete. And they're saying, well, I need a new one, mm. right? And that that's another aspect. So are, are you giving your, the, the, the brother or the older brother is giving it to his younger sister or, 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 or brother because they don't want that anymore and they want something faster because <laughs> they also want to game with it too on right. a big iPad. I mean, I don't know. That's part of this, right. I think. Yeah, My- no, I, I agree completely, Dino. You know, if you think about, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, if we think about what the traditional back to school shopping list looked like even four years ago, Right. You could probably go because I think, you know, Staples and Office Max did a great job of of creating kind of that shopping list. Here's what your your kid is going to need four or five years ago. You're exactly right. Laptops, iPads, tablets. None of those things were on that shopping list. Now, mm-hmm. I think they're on every shopping list, you know, regardless, even when you get down into, you know, early elementary school. Right. There's talk right. about tablets and those types of things. And you're exactly right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the hand-me-down thing, I think, might have worked kind of in my generation. I, today's generation, it's that's the hand-me-down is like a four-letter word. It's like no, <laughs> no. so I need I need my own. <laughs> I'm assuming now. Here's here. It's been a long time since uh, my brain has entertained seriously anything related to college. My kids aren't there yet, right? I got my oldest is going into high school this year, so we are still a few years away. But I'm assuming that these days there's no expensive textbooks that they just buy a license for the version on their computer. That's my hunch. Is that how it works, Constantine? Mike, do y'all know? I, my experience, it's a combo because sometimes some of the professors they want you to buy their books or whatever. There's the you know because you know they're the ones writing it, so they want to push it. But I, I would say to your point, I mean this idea of going back to the bookstore. I remember when I was in college and like returning all your books and getting the pizza money that you wanted that, that, that concept is like, it, it just doesn't exist. Anymore, right? <laughs> you, I mean, you printed all the stuff and you just, you just don't do that. anymore. Oh, so, I, 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 yeah. I, we got to keep going down this memory lane because do you remember when you take your book back in the quarter semester, whatever, and you'd be surprised on that one book that got you like 40 bucks back and you thought you're rich, you know, you've got, yes. you got money to go out with for weeks. Mike, you're nodding your hand that, that relate you. Uh, can it, relate. it does. Anecdotally. I, I, again, I'm well removed from having to buy college textbooks. Thank goodness. <laughs> but um, I, we did take, um, Dino, just maybe real quick for your background. I coach girls basketball. Uh, people okay. that have seen this know that probably had not seen about me because I talk about it a fair amount. But we took a we took a group of girls to the University of Utah for a basketball camp, okay. and a group of them wanted to go to the books the bookstore so they could buy University of Utah apparel. Yes. So the the college bookstore now the bottom floor is all apparel. There were books mm-hmm. on the top. But I, I agree with you completely, Dino. There's a shift towards, mm. and Scott, that electronic medium. I don't yep. think it's completely gone away. You know, as you think about maybe some of the more um, books that that want to have graphics, you know, whether it's an engineering book or a chemistry right. book, I think some of those types of books lend themselves more to like a physical picture that you can, you know, flip back and uh. forth to. But um yeah, the girls wanted nothing. Well, and it also they liked to go because they had a Starbucks. Right. So 
but it was all it was all about the apparel <laughs> and the whole bottom of the bookstore. Love it. Uh, look at the, look at the some of the comments here. Uh, let's see. First off, Latarsha, welcome in from South Haven, Mississippi. Will from uh, uh, Naperville, Illinois. Naperville. 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 My bad. Yeah. Up near where you are, up in Chicago land. Now, Will says textbooks are still a thing. They're very expensive. Aaron says my son's going to be a freshman in college this year, and all of his books for the first semester are all online. Uh, Maggie says most of mine were online. Those ebook licenses can be super pricey as well. And Catherine behind the scenes, big thanks to Catherine, Amanda, Catherine just finished up her MBA. Congratulations, Catherine. And she said all of her books were electronic. How about that? Um, okay. So I, I knew that combination of news and memory lane was going to have us uh, chatting for a little while. So I want to, I want to move right along. We got some other really cool stuff to get into. And Mike, you kind of alluded to our next story here. Let me tee this up here. So second story here on the supply chain buzz, we're seemingly in the midst of a reshoring tidal wave as reported by CNBC. Now, China concerns have been around for quite some time as companies have sought to diversify from a long-time dominant China-only strategy, right? That's, that's, That's not news. But that compounded by things like Russia's invasion of Ukraine and many other issues that are still disruptive and presenting other layers of complexity, global trade, production, shipping, you name it. And then on top of all of that, you've got countries like what we're seeing here in the U.S. They've ramped up incentives to bring manufacturing back to their countries or what have you, trying to make it easier, right? UBS, uh, the financial services firm UBS, polled some 1,600 executives a few months ago. 78% of those executives based in Europe and 70% of the executives in the U.S. plan to move parts of their supply chains closer to home. So, folks, um, and Adina, I want to start with you here. When you when you uh, think of reshoring and seeing some of the things that we've seen, really going back a couple of years now, what are some of your thoughts here? Uh, I think it's a confluence of a couple things. One, uh, COVID, the re the ongoing uh, repercussions of COVID. Two, accelerated changes in the geopolitical framework when we're looking at this dynamic now of emerging of, you know, I'm going to pull my academic hat on from graduate school days at Pitt, where we talked about hegemony, right? And this idea of a hegemonic power, it's like, well, who's posturing here between China and the United States and trying to do go for the sphere of influence, mm. right? For, so for 60, 70 years, the sphere of influence, you know, is Soviet Union, United States, we had that, we won the Cold War. Now you're still dealing with this with, now with China and an economic front. And I think the challenge here is where are these global value chains going and what are we trying to do with how we're trying to manufacture the idea of low cost? And you have this transition of China going from a manufacturing economy to a consumption economy. Mm. I mean, if you just look at the list of cities in China of the population that's more than 5 million people, it's incredible, right? I mean, it's at least 20 or 30 cities that have that alone. And it makes New York look like just another city. Right. So, and you have all this this influx of luxury goods and other types of things where the Chinese consumer now wants, they don't want to have any interest in manufacturing. And so, of course, their price is going to go up for manufacturing and it's going to get offshored on top of all those other geopolitical aspects of, you know, that, that's also happening. So, I think that it makes sense. It's this pushback now to say, well, we don't want to be 
uh, subject to, to China. So we want to go somewhere else to get our manufacturing. Mm. So, Dina, yeah. that's, uh, that is a salvo of insights and observations. Mike, what would you add to that? Yeah, I agree completely with with the observation. We did a a, a survey not too long ago. Seventy four percent of people said they were doing something around redesigning their network. Fifty one percent were around um, adding to the network. You know, a lot of our research has been focused on this idea of a China plus one strategy. Mm. Uh, I think Dino makes great points around who is the plus one though, and where is the mm. plus one. We're going to talk a little bit, I think, and in an upcoming segment around places like Costa Rica and other places. So yeah, I think it's, it's, if someone hasn't thought about that plus one strategy, they're probably behind the curve. But to me, the secret sauce is who's your plus one or plus two, right? We we've seen a lot of emphasis on regionalization, both from an organization structure, right? So it used to be centralized, centralized, uh, now we're seeing more companies trying to push decisions down, you know, more locally where, where decisions are can potentially be made better. But I think it's this idea of, of diversification is here to stay. To me, though, the bigger question is where, where do you diversify and, and what, uh, you know, Dino mentioned cost, which is certainly a big one. But what are those kind of decision criteria that you're going to f- build to then have that checklist that says, okay, this location, I can check three of the five of my criteria. This location potentially only checks one. What am I, how am I going to, how am I going to make those decisions? That's, I think, where it becomes important. Mike, uh, well said, you and Dino, and and Mike, I love that, uh, your, your main theme there, not only who is your plus one, but what is your equation to determining that? So it's a billion dollar question. Karak uh, Jose in the comments, and, and I'm not bring this up because it would cover up uh, half our screen here. But good stuff here, <laughs> good stuff from Karak. He says growing protectionist measures hinder the flow of imports and exports quickly. Shifts in trade policies and agreements disrupt supply chains and market access. The possibility of trade disputes and physical confrontations, while mounting uncertainties in domestic and global business environments, all that heightens the overall risk landscape. And then he mentions a couple of companies, uh, Dan and uh, the yogurt company, a food company, I believe, in Carlsberg, just lost over a billion dollars, Karas says, in assets overnight with Russia taking over operations. Man, that's like a full certification right there in a the comment, Karas. Thank you very much there. Um, but it's so true. A lot of what you are sharing is so true. But who is your plus one and what's your equation to getting there? So let's move. Mike, you alluded to this next story that we're diving into because some companies are determining their plus one is Costa Rica. Uh, So this comes to us from our friends at the U S embassy in Costa Rica. Um, So a a second cousin I'll call it of reshoring is near shoring where we have seen tons of activity there. But you know, Mexico is an example. Uh, And of course, pointing out that in the Western hemisphere, the relationship between Canada, U S and Mexico is very unique around the world. And it's created a lot of opportunities Costa Rica might be the newest beneficiary of the next round of chip-related nearshoring. The U.S. federal government, led by the State Department and the government of Costa Rica, are exploring a partnership that will lead to new production of semiconductors, all powered by the Chips and Science Act of 2022. Now, one little side comment here, a little business history. Intel had moved chip production from Costa Rica to Asia back in 2015. 
And then in mm-hmm. 2021, just six years later, the company announced a $350 million microprocessor assembly and test plant in Costa Rica. So what's old is new again. And Michael, I'll stick with you here. Your, your thoughts around uh, Costa Rica for some being the new plus one. It's interesting when you when you think about Costa Rica. I mean, I, I think you could play word association and chip manufacturing, and Costa Rica would never come together, right? It's mm. it's see, it's a vacation. Their number one, I believe, my wife and I were there a couple of years ago. I mean, their number one industry is tourism. So if you think about like you know setting a chip manufacturing plant in Costa Rica, you know what is that going to do? potentially to to their number one industry, which is tourism, first of all. I think Costa Rica notwithstanding, you know, if we think about that checklist of, of who your plus one is, mm. I think things like, you know, skilled labor, however you want to define skilled, right? I don't know what it takes to make chips, but is there is there a a a willing and able labor force to be able to 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 take advantage of whatever manufacturing you're putting in a in a, in a location. So to me, I have, I mean, I don't really have a perspective on Costa Rica per se. Um, you know, I, I, Intel is one of our top 25 companies. I know they do a lot of research around this. So if they ended up in Costa Rica, I, I'm sure they did a lot of due diligence around that. But, you know, to me, it's, it's does someone want you there? That's probably first and foremost to some of the, the points that Karai made. Right. You know, the last thing you want is to try to put yourself in a place where they don't really want you for whatever reason. Right. It right. Could what you make. It could be what you make. It could be just frankly who you are. Right. Um, and then do you have do you have the labor? You know, I think the other thing to think about, which isn't I don't know, it's necessarily a, a Costa Rica challenge. But if you look at some of the some of the moves over in the Far East, um, Vietnam and those areas, you know, typhoons and hurricanes, right? Is that, so you're going to go from China, which has one set of challenges to another area that's potentially got natural disaster challenges, right? So right. that checklist, I, again, I think becomes really important. Um, and it will be interesting to see how that is embraced within Costa Rica, both by the people and then that number one industry, which is tourism. Yes. Um, excellent commentary there. You know, I think um, labor, do the, do the government want you there? What are the incentives? Access to energy, certainly access to water for anything chip related, uh, chip manufacturing related. Uh, but Dino, what would you add? What's your reaction to uh, Costa well, Rica jumping in here? You know, so having visited Costa Rica a few years back, you know, people think Latin America, Central America tourism, which is absolutely spot on. But the thing about Costa Rica that we have to keep in mind is it's probably got the highest literacy rate of any country south of. United States. Wow. It's invested tremendously in education. They don't have a standing army. They are huge soccer fans, by the way. But <laughs> the point, yes. the point I'm trying to make is yes. they're very much into uh, I would almost almost call them somewhat of the Switzerland of, of 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 Central America and South America because of the high high literacy rates that they have there. And so if you have a dealing again, supply and demand and low cost, there's a reason why companies like Intel had decided to invest there. So you've got a highly educated labor force. The cost of probably doing business is low. It's in the same hemisphere. And so they're playing off with this idea of where they may want to try to do manufacturing. And you're also seeing a little bit of this with China playing this game in Brazil. Mm. 
So that's part of the reason why they made a lot of investment in South America. You're hearing about this story with the new president in Brazil being chummy with China. So it's an interesting play. Like who's going to be the sphere of influence? South America and Africa are going to be the two places in the world that we're going to really want to watch. So if we're going to take influence in Costa Rica and have that become an offshore for manufacturing, it's an interesting dynamic. And I was quite surprised by it to your guys' point, but it makes sense when you look at the infrastructure and what, what they're trying to be as a country in their region, given our influence over them and how we how we work with them. Well said. Hey, Central and South America both have been uh, good recipients uh, of these nearshoring uh, trends. It's been really interesting to yeah. see new operations setting up overnight and then the results are getting. So we'll keep our finger on the pulse. Uh, certainly all things chip related. That's been fascinating to see that all these developments uh, globally and certainly in the Western Hemisphere and uh, especially what's going on down there in Costa Rica. By the way, and Cobra, we're just going to have a fourth panelist here today, but I like his comments. <laughs> Cobra says, Groundhog Day. I had the Intel case in grad school. Intel, a case study of foreign direct investment in Central America back in 2000. Time flies. That's right. Time flies. Yeah. Um, all right. Really quick. want to make a quick blurb. We're all about resources here at Supply Chain. Now, I want to make sure, folks, we shared a couple of events on the front end, but join us this Thursday. As we dive into a case study, when you get TMS and ERP integrations right, the impact that can have on simplifying and making your shipping really, really successful. So join us at 12 noon Eastern time for that. The link to register is in the comments. Okay, man, Dino and Mike, y'all are quite the, y'all jump right in. You're quite the dynamic duo. I'm not sure who's Batman and who's Robin, but y'all make a great combo here today. And I want to get into this. This, this is going to be a testing. This, this is going to test my statement I shared here. So, Mike, uh, one of your last appearances here, of course, we shared the supply uh, the Gartner Supply Chain Top 25 for 2023, which came out just, just uh, what, 45 days, month and a half ago, two, two, two months ago or so. Uh, so, folks, we're going to drop the link that you can download the full list there from the team over at Gartner. And you, we're also going to drop the link for when Mike joined us last, where he dove into some of his key takeaways from the top 25. And we got the pyramid, the magical pyramid, uh, iconic pyramid uh, visually uh, displayed right now. So here, Dino, you know, as you dove into that research and then some, uh, and you look at the, some of the brands and logos and organizations represented, what's, what's a, a couple of your observations on the top 25, the supply chain top 25 for 2023? Uh, well, the one the one that it co- took me uh, a particular interest is I was looking at Schneider Electric, an old colleague of mine who was a uh, I worked at at CoreCentric, uh, used to work there, and I, I looked into them a little bit, and it's kind of one of those companies, and you're like, you know of them, but you you don't know they're not as familiar as a consumer brand, and I I went and looked at their site, I looked at a lot of the information, and they've really dove, they've really dived and in, dived in, dived into this. <laughs> Into this, this isn't a grammar class. Nope. It's a, <laughs> it, it, they, they, if you see the way they present themselves, and they've invested a lot of time and effort into the idea around the sustainability and what they're trying to do to promote electricity and promoting how companies use electricity. And it makes total sense to me where they've always constantly been this leader 
uh, because it's something that they're trying to always achieve, not only for their customers, but they're also, you know, they're, 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 they're drinking their own Kool-Aid, right? They're doing what they say they're doing as part of their business. Mm. And I think we'll continue to see that whether you're putting the framework around ESG, which I still struggle with around that acronym, but broader on the sustainability, that is something all of these have in common. And how are they trying to innovate with that? That's what's key. Mm. How, how are they using that to their advantage? And I think that's probably some of the criteria, Mike, that you guys were looking at, because that's important beyond just saying I'm checking the box. Right. It's something that is transformative as part of what they're really trying to do and, and making money doing that, but doing it in a way that is going to be for the future, not just saying we're, we want to make a list. Right. So I can truly see that about these companies and what they, the list that, that that's there. Well said, Dina. Mike, I'm going to get you away in just a second. But just to clarify to our listeners out there that may be listening and not watching. So Schneider Electric came in at number one of the top 25 lists. So Dina was talking about that organization. Uh, and Kora evidently is a big Tesla fan. Tesla came in at number 14. So uh, Elon Musk famously said, uh, I'm going to paraphrase his, his comment, man, this supply chain stuff. It's pretty tricky. <laughs> well, they're they're figuring it out slowly but surely. Hey, uh, Mike, uh, you heard Dino's uh, commentary there on top twenty five, and of course, you've you've offered up some of your key takeaways. What else comes to mind? Well, I th I think Dino hit on the, the, the Schneider Electric observation is is spot on in terms of their transformation journey. Um, you know, they they like many others in the top twenty five have done a really good job of, of articulating what does transformation look like for them and then making progress towards that. You know, I think when when I look at those companies near the top of the list, they do not succumb to what I would call the shiny object syndrome. Mm. You know, they have a transformation roadmap. This is what they're going to um, embark upon. Yes, there'll be course corrections, you know, for example, with, with COVID as an example. But in general, they're, they're highly focused on, on what they want to accomplish. The other element that I want to speak to, uh, and Dino alluded to it, is 50% of the methodology is really a, a community perspective. Their peers, as well as the Gartner experts. And Schneider does a great job, Dino pointed this out, of talking about what they're doing with their supply chain. Now, if you, if you look at that, you know, you could argue that it's just a lot of stuff. And I would say it is, but it's a lot of stuff that relates to what they're doing, how they think about the supply chain, their willingness to share with the rest of the community to try to give everyone an opportunity to raise the level of their own supply chains, which is part of the reason we built the top 25, you know, 19 years ago was to raise the entire supply chain profession. Mm. And I think Schneider's a great example of someone that, yes, they're highly focused on what they want to do, but they also recognize that as someone that has a good supply chain, they have a responsibility to help others and help others raise the level of their own supply chain. Mm. Love that. Well said. And again, we want to celebrate 19 years of great work that I believe just one person's opinion truly has elevated the industry and it's given tons of, of uh, research and content and, um, and uh, some of the formula out for folks to study and improve their own organizations. I should also point out here, uh, if, the, if, the top, if the Gartner Supply Chain Top 25 is new to you, please use the link we dropped in the comments and go check it out and download your own copy to the Gartner um, 
material there. But I want to point out, so while Schneider Electric is the top of the list, over to the right of the pyramid, you see Amazon, Apple, P&G, and Unilever, and that is the master's category. Those are folks that basically, Mike, have been doing it so good for so long, you had to create a special category. Did I get that right, Mike? That's pretty close, Scott, yes. Okay, yes. excellent. All right, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, Dean, I'm going to give you the final word. Before we start talking about uh, the company on number nine of the rankings, your final word there, Dino, I, I know this is not new to you. It, it certainly has elevated industry, right? Would you agree, Dino? Yeah, I, I think it's it's raised an awareness uh, of how companies are understanding what they're trying to do. And it creates a little competition, right? I mean, if you see a logo there and you know you're a direct competitor, obviously that's a, that's a great way to try to promote and, and keep things going. There's a great book that I read a few years back by Paul Kennedy. It was called The Rise of, 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 of Nations. And it was talking about the reasons why c- competition in Western Europe made it such a way that drove innovation and it forced people to think a different way of trying to accomplish tasks that have been done the same way for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in this case, it's acceleration of um, people are seeing supply chain. Now they're saying, okay, if I see somebody on that list, now because supply chains become strategic, mm. not just shipping something, it's post-COVID, everyone knows what supply chain is. I think it's even become more important because it's going to be that driver saying, I want to outdo mm my competitor. So you guys are kind of doing a service to the market in some regard that way too. Love it. Uh, great work, Mike and team. And we look forward to the next one. And, uh, you know, Mike, if you can't notice, Dino, I love his perspective of supply chain from that history point of view. Do you know, you see those two worlds coming together? Yes. I love it. Yes. Um, all right. So as I mentioned, uh, number nine on the Gartner supply chain top 25 list is our friends at Walmart. And there's a particular development that hit my radar late, I'll admit, uh, but in the last week or so. And this comes to us via the PY, probably the, the payments magazine, PYMNTS. Uh, you, you know, in the technology world, as Greg likes to say, you got to misspell things to be cool in the technology world. <laughs> he says that a lot. Uh, but anyway, so I want to dive into uh, Walmart. So this year, Walmart has been using a chatbot developed by the company. Pactum to negotiate cost and purchase terms with some of its, of its vendors. The retailer has limited the experiment largely, and, and Dino, I think you got an update here, but to, uh, mostly to smaller contracts as well as for only equipment that Walmart uses. But the early results are pretty promising. Some 75% of Walmart's vendors, per the headline here, prefer dealing with chatbots. That's interesting. And the automation, this is my favorite part perhaps, has allowed Walmart's procurement teams to work on more critical and bigger deals, creating more value for the company. Now, before I get uh, y'all two to respond, I guess this image here is what we can come to expect with su- what supplier negotiations are going to look like in just a few years or maybe a few months. Um, all right. So, <laughs> Mike, let's start with you. Your thoughts here of what we're seeing uh, with this uh, this experiment with Walmart. Yeah, it, it, it's not surprising that that Walmart is doing this. If, if you kind of just casually watch the headlines, Walmart, while obviously a very successful retailer, over the last probably five years has also been a very successful uh, acquirer of technology. Everything from things on the customer side to now working with things on the AI side. 
it's interesting kind of where this is starting. If we, if we if we go back to the early days of things like the marketplaces and, and the auctioning sites that were used, they started very similarly with those types of, of purchases and, and creating an auction environment for things like equipment and supplies. So it doesn't surprise me that that's the place to start. You know, I think that we've always, from a Gartner side, you know, seen this idea of AI and machine learning really as as an augmentation, as and in some instances an automation tool. You know, I think what Walmart is doing is probably an early indicator of of one of the ways that maybe we would celebrate AI Appreciation Day is the fact that they can do some of these types of of contracts uh, and these types of negotiations that are that are relatively straightforward, right? Think about equipment. They've got you know a, a pretty well defined specification. There's probably not going to be a lot of deviation in the specification. You can automate those discussions. You know, Walmart certainly has an idea around you know, what they think is is a price they want to pay for that that product or service, you can build that into the tool. So so to me, this is probably an early indicator, right? Again, if we think about the supply chain top 25, right. what, what what could other companies learn from this? You know, I, I think I think they are they are on to something. The the bigger question will be where where does it make sense to go next? Mm. And and how do you manage that transition into say other categories, other types of products? How do you manage that? And again, what's the criteria that you might develop that says this is a good candidate for a chatbot negotiation? Mm. This is a bad candidate. We would never do that, right? So that the organization itself has those those guardrails. But I, I think. We probably should have seen this coming at some point, right? That, yes. that this is a natural kind of um, use case. You know, we talk at Gartner a lot about, you know, use cases. You know, some instances you have, you know, I think blockchain is a great example of a problem running around trying to find a use case. I think this is probably the opposite, right? Th- yes. This is a, a well-designed use case for AI. Yeah, well said, Mike. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, I'm coming to you next, but, quick comment. You mentioned how Walmart more and more in recent years has really become savvy with incorporating new technology, acquiring new technology, working with you know, startups and the like. You can see those results in the drone advantages, drone program, uh, drone delivery advantages they've gained over their big rival Amazon. But I would also add just my opinion. I've noticed Walmart also hiring a lot of ex- Amazon uh, talent and and experts and leaders. That's fascinating as well. Um, Dino, so when it comes to this story here, I think you got a kick out of it as much as I did, uh, especially yes. the image. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, one thing, I always find it funny that we try to anthropomorphize uh, AI always. Like, they always have to have some human body. Like, that's one robotics is one type of AI, but, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to get there because if you think about the concept of the chatbot, I mean, we're using this every day in our language when we're talking to Siri or and Alexa, right. right? So that concept, I mean, we, we're always trying to figure out, well, how is this going to replace right. us? And I think the, the challenge here that they're solving for is something that was close to my heart because I had covered this topic when I was at Hackett. 
and at Aberdeen about the concept from procurement for tail spend. So that's really the big issue here. It's this non-strategic spend. It's not the strategic suppliers are talking about mostly. It's this non-strategic spend where you had 2,000 suppliers and they're trying to figure out how to get through all this. So if you can imagine how many suppliers and how many different locations where Walmart has all these facilities, right? And they're trying to normalize the terms and conditions so they can take advantage of their payment, uh, you know, payment days outstanding. So this is a capital, uh, a capital management, uh, working capital question. Because if they can make sure they normalize that and they can manage that cash more effectively and take it longer on a, on a normalized basis across all of those indirect suppliers, mm. they, that's a huge working capital advantage for them that they may not have had by not having a, a way of uh, taking advantage of the AI. And this AI is essentially what the way I've read it is it's taking stuff that we're familiar with already, right? We understand chatbots because we use them all the time. It takes the machine learning, but it also takes the amount of data. And I've also seen this evolution where it's it's playing into the contract lifecycle management. So taking in contracts as part of that and trying to make sure then that everything's being negotiated in a consistent way and knowing that there's a limitation of resources on the procurement side. And they're saying what you were saying, Scott, is they want to focus more than on the strategic stuff. And they want to have this kind of tactical stuff uh, being managed by machine. So that way they're not being over resource uh, inundated, but at the same time, making sure they're still managing it and they're not, you know, forgetting about it because then that's where things go awry. And I think that's just my observation of where Pactum and then there's a lot of other, there's a lot of innovation happening in this space. Um, and it's, it's it's exciting to see that a big company like Walmart has embraced it. It is. Letting the humans, to your point, to one of your last points here, let humans do human stuff that they're best suited for. Um, a lot of it's fascinating. We're going to keep our finger on the pulse. You know, we, we interviewed a, a Walmart executive uh, uh, just a month or two ago and really had a fascinating time talking about some of the cool things they're doing from a supply chain perspective. We're going to have to get a procurement leader from Walmart to talk about this, which just it, I had to hang on to my socks as I was reading more and more about what they're doing over at Walmart. And Mike and Dino, you know, we talk about the customer experience and the employee experience, well, the supplier experience. Clearly, they're liking this, and and they're it's effective and and it works for them. So we can expect there to be a lot more of it. I would imagine, Mike. I'm gonna give you the final word here today. Yeah, great points um, from Dino. I think the other thing that it does, uh, and I agree completely around kind of how do you manage the tail around this from a supplier perspective. I think the other thing, and if I was, if someone said, so Mike, why do you think the suppliers like it? I think in some ways this levels the playing field, mm. right? You're, it's basically, you know, you're, you're the whole emotional aspect, some of the other, let's call them maybe incentives, that one company might offer that another company couldn't, those all go away. Everyone is now on a very level playing field. I think any type of compliance potentially challenges, those are all gone now because everyone, you know, the the, the chatbot you know, has no emotions. I love, uh, Dino, your observation around whenever we talk about this, we always have to turn them into something that looks like us, right? For whatever reason. I don't know why that it's is. It's our nature. It's yeah. our nature. But we want to relate. That's right? a great observation on your point, uh, on your part. Um, but but I do think, you know, that 75, I think it's, it could be because it, people feel like it's a level playing field now. Yeah. We're all talking to the same chatbot that has the same kind of uh, outcome in mind. 
Yeah. And you're, you're and it's, this is obvious, but you're taking emotion and yes. personality out of the conversations and speaking from experience. That's a great thing at times, you know? Um, all right. I, we've got to have the two of y'all back. Uh, I'm already looking forward to your next appearance uh, with us, Mike. Uh, usually the first Wednesday of each month. So y'all can find uh, to our audience, you can find Mike with us uh, the first Wednesday of each month, usually at 12 noon, supply chain today and tomorrow with the one only Mike Griswold. So stay tuned for that. And Dino, you're going to be with us, I think, the third Monday of each month mm-hmm. on the buzz. So I tell you, you and Mike make quite the tandem. But I got to, I got to, before you leave, Mike and Dino, I got to share Mohib. Our dear friend Mohib is back with us. And by the way, happy birthday, Mohib. I think it was your birthday a couple of days ago. He says, it was good to see McDonald's in the top 20. McDonald's came in at top 20 in the top 25. French fries are not that bad. I disagree. Completely disagree. They're the best in the business. Uh, <laughs> Mohib, but he said, <laughs> Mohib says they got to improve the supply chain of that really bad coffee to go up the ranking. It's just a non-expert <laughs> opinion. No offense to the cheap coffee drinkers. Hey, Mohib, great to see you. Uh, and thanks for your perspective as always. I'm, we're going to come see you in Wichita soon, I promise. Um, all right. So, Mike, uh, before we wrap, let's make sure folks know how to connect with you and the supply chain enablers team uh, at Gartner. How can folks connect with you? Uh, LinkedIn and just drop me an email, mike.griswold at, at gartner.com. And, and I just want to echo, Dino, it was very nice to meet you and a great segment. Yes, you as well. You as well, Mike. Man, that's high praise coming from the Mike Griswold, uh, Dino. So, folks, reach out to Mike and, of course, uh, check him out here first Wednesday of each month. And, Dino, uh, this I think this is your third or fourth appearance now. I think you, you, you hit home runs, as Mike suggested. How can folks connect with you and all the cool things you got going on? I'll just have to ditto on Mike there. LinkedIn, email, uh, you know, always, always open to have a conversation and a debate or whatever that is that you want to talk about <laughs> and talk history, talk history from a very educated and passionate standpoint, which I can really appreciate. And by the way, uh, speaking of history, uh, Kora says, Hey, Constantine is totally cheering for Greece. Greece is showing the best economic growth in Europe with a 5.5% uh, growth rate far above the EU average. How about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, they finally turned that around over there, and uh, it's 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 good to see that uh, you know that that that's uh, that's had an impact in the past few years, considering some of the stuff they had to deal with mm. 10, 15 years ago. Heard that. Okay, we got to leave it there. Big thanks again to Mike Griswold with Gardner. Uh, Mike, looking forward to seeing you next month. Me too. Yeah, uh, we are as well. Big thanks to Constantine Limbarakis, uh, a guest host here and supply chain guru. You can check out check them both out on LinkedIn and, of course, tune in here as they make their appearances. But whatever you do, folks, as we sign off, hey, deeds, not words. Check out the great expertise that Dino and Mike dropped here today and do something with it. And with that said, on behalf of our entire team here at Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton signing off for now, challenging you to do good, to get forward, and to be the change. We'll see you next time right back here. That's Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.